Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to share with you five ways to specialize. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love specialization. Yeah. So we this is sort of the antidote to an episode we did a couple weeks back about what happens when your niche turns into a rut. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, definitely don't want to come off as if niching down is a bad idea or specializing or picking a target market. They're all different ways to say a similar thing. Uh, but the overall idea is that trying to sell anything to everyone is like selling nothing to nobody. So you want to you want to decide. It makes it a lot easier. Let's put it this way. It makes it a lot easier for your to attract your ideal buyers, attract your ideal clients, and for them to get their heads around what it is that you what value you could potentially provide for them if you get more specific, because then you can use their language and you can talk about their problems and they'll recognize themselves in your marketing materials. And yeah, it, when you have a sales call, you can uh, speak to their problems and articulate them better than the client even can. It, it makes you, it makes you seem like you have ESP and that you can really, really help. Yes, so yeah, it's exactly. a really, really powerful thing to do. But we recognize that it's counterintuitive because it feels like if you're focusing on a smaller market, you'll get fewer leads and fewer leads is the last thing you want. You want more leads and better leads. So it seems like casting a wide net would catch the most fish uh, when in fact that doesn't really doesn't really work. I can't think of a situation where it has really worked uh, with anybody, not literally not one person I've worked with. Um, okay. So all that said, over time, we've kind of collected a list of different ways to specialize and there are five suggestions that we're going to make today, five ways that you can specialize or, or ways to think about specializing that might, hopefully one of them will immediately click with you and, and you'll think, Oh, I could do that. Like that's not so hard. Or you might recognize that you kind of are uh, already specialized. You have a de facto specialization, but you're just not articulating it in your marketing materials. So you're making it hard on yourself for no reason. Yes. Yes. That happens a lot. Cool. Okay. So we've got five. I'll just, I want to start at the, at least for my audience, the developer types, especially I'm going to start at the sort of most obvious ones, but perhaps the weakest ones, and then move down to maybe some stronger ones that are a little bit less obvious. Uh, but the overview is that we're going to talk about horizontal specialization, platform specialization, vertical specialization, demographic specialization, and psychographic specialization. So those are the five types. And the first one is horizontal. And again, with developers who are usually in execution mode, implementation mode, building mode, coding mode, they're doing the labor of creating software applications. They usually think of a horizontal specialization first. They think that's what I want to do. I want to specialize on this particular technology that I'm in love with. I love playing with Node or I love playing with React. It's just my favorite thing. I really enjoy it. It's um, it's something that I think provides a lot of value and I think a lot of people would, would like. And hey, I've been making money probably by the hour to do it. So obviously somebody values it. So I just want to I just want to focus down on this thing that I enjoy and then look for people who need that. And this is, to me, this is probably the weakest uh, in terms of, in terms of attracting leads and growing your business is probably the weakest way to go uh, with some exceptions that I'm going to get to, but it's probably the weakest way to go because you're thinking about yourself too much. It's like, I love node. I love optimizing my sequel. I, 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 me, me, me. And, you know, to say like, oh, well, uh, I should be able to make a living doing what I love, shouldn't I? And it's like, well, what if you love Vulcan, like teaching the the Vulcan language from Star Trek to people. It's like, yeah, I love that. Or I love playing D&D. Like you could have these things that you love doing that no one wants to pay you for. And that would be, well, that's a hobby. So there, there are things that you can love doing. Knitting, martial arts. These are things that people in my family love doing, but we're not out there trying to make a business around it. So if you, if you, it could be that there's an overlap between, let's say, React and and a viable business, but there might not be, or, or at least not at the income level that you're interested in. So it is a way that you can specialize, however, but at least in my world, what I would recommend to people is, or recommend that you consider, is if you really want to do a horizontal specialization, you really want to be... Um, 
you just want to be doing node all the time or vanilla JavaScript or whatever view. If you want to do all of those things, great. Maybe you should do training because if you want to attract clients to give them say either advisory consulting services around this particular technology that you're in love with, um, or you want to just code, you want to build things with this particular technology that you're in love with, you're heavily dependent on your reputation and how famous you are. Have you, you know, are you the person who wrote the book on whatever Python, auto, you know, Python automation? Are you that person? If you are, then you're probably going to attract people who know they need Python. But most good buyers are not going to know they need Python. They're going to have some business problem and they're not going to know that Python is the solution to it. Now, the exception there is if you want to sell to your peers, if you do want to start sort of a, a training uh, workshops and on, you know, maybe in-person workshops, online training, sell ver- video courses, teaching people how to do Python. Yes. Um, you can attract people who want to learn Python, uh, which is actually, it's actually a cheat because that's a different kind of specialization. But, but generally people think of it, you know, people who love Python or whatever, well, they'll think of it like, ah, I love Python. I know everything about it. Um, and I just want to talk about Python all day. It's like, well, there are probably other, other developers who want to learn that. So essentially you'd be selling training products to your peers, which definitely can work. Don't get me wrong. That definitely works. Uh, the tricky part is when you want to sell consulting services to clients who don't really care about Python, but all of your marketing is like, I'm awesome at Python. Yeah, that's, I, I don't know how you do that well. Mm-hmm. And so what are some other, what are some other examples that are outside of the software space? I would say someone like a copywriter. I want to write copy. I love writing copy. If anybody needs copy, they should call me. I'll write you some copy. Yeah. I mean, it's almost, it's almost anything related to a craft, right? It's writing copy. It's designing pay plans. It's, um, I was going to say doing HR strategy. Doing the execution part, yeah. Yeah, I think of it as sort of the the place where a classic freelancer starts. So maybe you like if you're not a developer, you leave corporate and you're doing something in that corporate life. You're you're a, an expert or a budding expert on something, and maybe you've had a staff role, and then you start doing it for other companies as an independent. So you don't really think about the kinds of companies you're going to work for. You're, you're in your geographic place. And you pitch everybody in your neighborhood, basically, everybody in your city. Yep. It's a resume approach. I have this skill and I'm going to sell it to people who need this skill. Could be video production, could be audio production, it could be um, product photography, it, all, all of these things. It, you're exactly right. It's kind of the technician personality type from the e-myth where I, I have this skill, I probably got it as an employee, and I know I'm going to rent myself out by the hour, most likely to undertake the activities of my skill for people who know that it's something that they need. Uh, so we already said from a marketing standpoint, it's not that great because it doesn't, it doesn't connect the dots between your skill and what the positive business outcome might be for your buyer, unless you're selling training. But the other thing is it makes you very tough to differentiate from other people who also have that skill. Yes. And because of that, it also limits how much money you can make. Mm hmm. Right. Because it's like, I am a copywriter. Well, okay, I can do a search for copywriters and come up with literally thousands. So what's different about you? And if if you haven't solved for that, it's going to be tough to command higher prices. It's just very hard because you're presenting yourself as the same as everyone else. Well, and it's always interesting to me when I meet people who are either just getting ready to make the break or they've made the break and they're in the first month or two. It's they can't imagine specializing. And I think part of that is is there's this feeling of freedom. I've left the big monster. I'm on my own. And they're excited. And they just say, look and say, the world is my oyster. I can do this for everybody. I mm-hmm. literally can do this for everybody. And I want to. Yeah. And it, true. I mean, I, I've met a lot of people who feel like that. And it's it's cyclical, though. After you're doing it for a while, then you start to go, oh, maybe there's a better way. Maybe in my learning in my staff job and in my learning here, there's another way for me to specialize besides this. Yeah, that usually happens when they hit their first famine cycle, which happens usually about a year to 18 months in because they've exhausted their network of referrals and they've exhausted the goodwill that comes with 
you know, somebody who's telling their boss to take the job and shove it and like going out their own. Hey, everybody, Rebecca finally quit. And, and she's looking for development. You know, she wants to do no development or she wants to do Python development. Any, you know, anybody that needs Python development, there's a story there. It's a marketing story. Yeah. Let's send some work her way. Yeah. And then a year later, that's, that's now she's just another freelancer scrapping for any client she can get. And she's on Upwork and TopTal and, and over there, you can sort by hourly rate. So if you're looking for hourly, cheap hourly rates for Python developers, it's easy to find. So it's tough to win. Well, and plus, if if in that first year, you're so busy because you're doing all the work that's coming your way, chances are you're not laying the foundation for what comes next, right? You're not, you're not making the, the phone calls or doing the social media or creating content. I mean, you're not doing anything beyond doing the work. And at some point, that's going to stop. Yeah. And so I, I mentioned with horizontal that there's some exceptions to it. Uh, one of them is if you're selling to your peers to do training, that's, that's one. But the other exception is our next specialization type, which is platform specialization. And that is, it's sort of a subset of horizontal, but there's a major difference, which is that uh, you are specializing on a platform that your ideal buyer, the business buyer, knows they chose. So it would be something like, from the development world, your business buyers, so people farther up the food chain, not the not the developers and lead developers or even developer managers, but the the VPs, SVPs, uh, senior leadership, they know they use Salesforce or they know they use Shopify or they know they use FileMaker. These are these are platforms that the business people decided on and probably invested a lot of money in. And you can you can uh, leverage that to be a platform specialist, and this is it's basically a horizontal specialization, but it's meaningfully different in that good buyers, the business buyers, know they have it; they're financially invested in it. And here's the other really cool thing: is that you can uh, a lot of times partner with the platform to get leads, and basically you kind of piggyback on their marketing. Well, yeah, and they've got all sorts of pockets of people. They may have conferences, sub-conferences, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of ways that you can connect with that audience. Right. It's a really good, uh, honestly, if if you're thinking about a platform specialization, uh, sorry, a horizontal specialization, I think a platform specialization, if you can find one, is just so much easier. The problem with it is if the platform goes down, you go down with it. Yeah. So hello, Flash developers. So <laughs> that's a downside. And, and it brings up the topic of like, where is the platform in its life cycle? So it's probably pretty late to be really hitting a home run with a Salesforce specialization, or at least a huge home run. Like you can, it's a really good thing to specialize on. Shopify is a really good thing to specialize on. I know people that have make really good livings specializing on both of those platforms. Really good. Uh, I know people who make a good living specializing on drip. I know somebody who does nothing but help people. Well, not nothing, but one of his big products uh, in serv- productized services is that he migrates people from drip to convert kit. Yeah. He's a certified uh, partner on both platforms and he he can sell those sorts of services but he also has this sort of thing in the middle where he uh, migrates people and that gives it's it's a, a kind of advanced example because he's got two platform specializations so if let's say one of them goes down and his business you know follows with he's got the other one that's on the upswing so that's that's a pretty interesting tactic but they're both in they're both email they're both in the same space yeah. yeah, they're competitors, yeah. right? Uh, another thing is that if you get in, I think I started to say this, if you get in really early with a platform or there aren't a ton of partners already, it's still kind of early days, but you feel like you're really excited about it. You love it. So it feels like horizontal in that sense because it's all about you. Like, oh, I, I love ConvertKit. I think it's the coolest. I think it's really elegant software. Um, and I'm really excited about it. I want to use it for my own business. And you can get in early in a partner program or you can connect with um, their demand generation people or their lead generation people. Or, you know, you can start to connect with their marketing people on a personal basis. Like Rochelle said, you can start to get invited to things where they're having you speak at their conference. They are uh, promoting your 
your services on their website. They are sending your name out in their mailing list. And somebody that's running a, a, a platform that's starting to get traction could easily have 10,000, 50,000 customers already. And if you're offering a service or a productized service that's related to that platform, that's a lot of potential clients. That's a lot of leads. And I know, I know people who have gotten in early with uh, different platforms, Squarespace. I know someone who was one of the very first Squarespace partners, and he had to hire three people who was getting so many leads. Like, it just when the platform takes off, your business is going to go up. When the platform goes down, your business is going to go down. So there's pros and cons to it, but you can piggyback on their marketing and you don't have to do as much of it yourself to get started. Yeah, I think of it as a great place to start. I mean, I'm, I've just been looking at, at two startups, um, Substack and Mighty Networks. And both of those, I don't know about from a development standpoint, but both of those have opportunities for people to really jump on early. Not that those are the only two, but those are two I've been looking at recently. And I was struck by how a savvy communicator could get involved with that and, and build out, like in, in the case of Mighty Networks, could build out networks for people for a fee. Sure. I think there's ton, I, I, there's no end. I mean, you could look at any SaaS that seems to be growing. They're doing well. They're high. If you go to a SaaS that you use that you love and see if they're hiring, if they're hiring like crazy, that's probably a good sign. And it might be something that, you know, you could specialize on. I think Zapier is a, a great example of something that it seems I've never come across somebody who's marketing themselves as someone who's good at helping you plug things together with Zapier or the, the similar types of services. There's just and like if there is someone people. listening, I want to know you <laughs> that does that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like reach out. <laughs> yeah. Be the no code software developer. It's a, it's a yeah. great angle. It's a great angle. I know someone who consults on how to use Notion, which is sort of like a, it's almost like a modern Google apps suite, you know, or Microsoft office suite of things. It's uh, Basecamp consult, whatever. There's a million of them out there. It's uh, it's a training wheels style specialization. It's similar to horizontal. It's a subset, but you get a lot of, you get a lot of benefits without having to be super savvy in the marketing areas. Mm-hmm. It's a good beginner beginner place. Mm -hmm. Cool. Which brings us to vertical. Uh, A vertical specialization is one where you you don't focus so much on your uh, skills. It's not that you're amazing at Python or Node or Shopify integration or anything like that. It's not about you so much as it is about who you want to help. And you define who you want to help by a vertical, which means sort of like what's the what's the market segmentation? It's almost like what's their tax designation? It's like a, mm-hmm. or, their sick code. Yes, thank you. Yes, that's what I meant. Is it a local restaurant? Is it a chain of restaurants? Is it martial arts schools? Is it uh, tennis pros? Is it you know what do they what what is what business are they in? Laundromats, whatever goes on, the list goes on, and. If you get really familiar with this vertical, with this industry, industry designation, right? Yeah. So if you get really familiar with this industry and and the particular challenges in the industry, and then you figure out an overlap between your skills, because you you don't just, no matter how um, specialized you are skill-wise, you still have a broad range of skills. You know how to use a computer. You know how to use uh, an office suite. You know how to use whatever. You know how to do all of these things. You're an organized person, all of that. And if you can apply all of those, if you can take all of those skills and find an overlap where, where let's say a trucking company who's not a super savvy technical person like you or a developer, let's say, or whatever, copywriter, photographer, whatever. If you're one of those things and you decide that, well, my dad ran a trucking company, I, I understand the lingo, I know what their concerns and their challenges are, I can speak to the problems that they have. And I can solve some of those problems with this broad array of skills that I have. Not You're not specializing your skills so much in this case. You're more of a generalist skill-wise, a little bit. And you can apply them broadly to solve particular problems for like a trucking company or a laundromat or whatever. This feels to me like when somebody's starting out as a freelancer, this is what they imagine having a niche is. To me, this is the starting point of niches that you can own. 
that you're not where you're not relying on someone else to send something over the fence to you. And it's also I feel like the the other part of this is who do you really want to help? This is your chance to really get some emotion around your audience, around, you know, we've talked a lot about the transformations that you create is who do you want to transform? Who do you care most about? And the interesting thing is it doesn't, it doesn't have to be people think, oh, it's, you know, it's saving whales or it's saving the earth. I mean, those are all good things too, but you can be excited about a trucking company. You might have a story to tell about why you're excited about that. I'm thinking of a guy, I can't remember his name, who was he got into this software, of course, I can't remember what that is either, that is a substitute for Word that supposedly helps particularly blog writers and authors to use this thing faster. And there's been a lot of stuff written about him. But he created a at least a half a million dollar business out of doing nothing but focusing on writers. In this case, teaching them a skill. But he focused. The writers were the people that he really felt connected to. Yeah. You're 100% right about that. This is what people imagine is the only way to specialize. This is what they think of when they think of niching down. And they're like, they're like, you know, but I can't get enough leads to make a living. And I'm targeting everyone. If I just focus down on laundromats, you know, that's 1% of what I'm currently projecting myself into the world as a potential partner for. If I focus down on something that's like a fraction of that, then I'll get a fraction of the current leads and my current leads are already in the toilet. So it, but it's, I understand that it's, it's counterintuitive, but the exact opposite is what happens because as soon as you start focusing on someone who you want to help and which the, which this and the following two, um, the following two types of specialization are going to cover. Once you start focusing on them instead of yourself, then you can suddenly do all sorts of proactive things. Prior to that, you really can't. There's not a lot you can do proactively with a horizontal or, or like, I mean, there is, it's proactive, but it's very long-term. You can do really immediate proactive. You can do proactive things with a clearly defined target market that will have instantaneous results. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of an example of the guy that I worked with who was a web designer and he was in a, a pretty small city, but he'd built this small team and they were really good, but they had no specialization. And then he wound up doing a website for a financial advisor in town and they did a really good job. And, you know, there's a gazillion financial advisors just in the U.S. alone. And so, of course, that financial advisor got questions about the site. So he sent people to his web designer. So then the, they did a second one and then they did a third one. And then he started to think, Oh, I'm starting to understand how these folks work. And then he started to look at who's the audience here. How many are there? How many of these can we do? Do I have to be local? No, I don't. I could specialize in this. And the next thing you know, he was speaking at a conference. And then he started slowly. He still he resisted for a long time changing the messaging because he felt like he was committed to the local community. But this was the 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 niche that was bringing him all their revenue. It was keeping his team busy, right? And you can he can start to learn the language of the business and immediately be recognized as someone who maybe isn't a tribe member per se, but but gets it. Uh, you can uh, serves the tribe. Serves the tribe. Yeah, there you yeah. go. And they've got and and guess what? They have trade publications. They have conferences. They have uh, events. They have meetups. They know each other. They, they share. Talk to each they other. They talk to each other, right? Especially about this. Everybody wants a better website because they're all convinced the better the website, the better the leads. Mm-hmm. One of the objections I'll hear when I start to describe the wonders of a picking a vertical specialization is that uh, they'll there will be like this um, conflict of interest situation where, well, if I'm you know if I'm building websites for this financial services provider won't other financial services providers feel like you know I'm I'm helping the competition and it's like like first of all just no like stop thinking that it does not happen and if it did happen you're doing something right it's but it's not going to happen because clients don't like I'm not going to say that that never will be a concern of your clients but a bigger concern is incompetence and 
they are going to take the risk of that you're sharing their trade secrets with their competitor, which you can easily speak to and be like, look, I'll sign an NDA. Like, let's move on from this. If you don't trust me, I don't want to work with you anyway. So it's easy to address it directly. But even, even if it became a problem and it won't, it won't become a problem because they, they would rather work with someone who is going to be the most effective for them. And it's easy to demonstrate that you're most effective for people like them because you've got a track record. So you could say to somebody who raised this objection, again, they won't, but if they did, you could say, <laughs> this is this is like, everyone imagines that this is a problem with a vertical spe- specialization. It just never, it's just so, it's just such a non-issue. But anyway, you could just say to them, look, you can hire, like, fine, don't hire me. Go get some random marketing company, get some random photographer, get some random web developer. Fine. See how you do with them. And then if you, if you're not happy with it, you can come back to me later. No big deal. It's just, and they're going to pick you because you're the one they trust. I mean, they just, it helps to see what you've done. And if you've done work for people like them, it's, it's, that's your credential. We love that as, as buyers of anything that we don't understand personally, that we can't do for ourselves. We want to be able to have it be a slam dunk decision. We want to be able to look and see something and go, yeah, I want not that necessarily, but I want something that that person created. They get it. They've got a vision. I want that vision for me. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you lose 1% of your, you know, most paranoid people in your target market, (laughs) because they're afraid that you're sharing secrets between, Ugh. you know, funny, you know, then fine. They probably wouldn't have been a great customer anyway. Oh, they would drive you insane. And there's we, a million other ones. You don't need paranoids on your client list. Exactly. There, I'm not going to say there's no exceptions to this. Like if you're, if you're doing like social media marketing for two businesses that are across the street from each other, but that's just not reality. It's very easy in this day and age. If you're dealing with like physical retail or something and you're just trying to like, you know, just broaden your, your geographic area to the entire country or the whole world or whatever. It's, it's just not a, it's an objection I get all the time that is, it's just not real. Well, it's, I think it's because we tend to think locally. So in that example I used with that web designer, maybe there were five financial advisors that were independent. They could actually hire him in town. And I could argue, yeah, all, all five probably won't hire him, but why would he just stick to there? In this case, his um, his ge- geography should be at least national. At least. It's different once you're outside the U.S. The rules are different. The regulations are different. But at least the U.S., that's like the starting point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's everything we need to say about vertical specialization. <laughs> Moving to uh, another one. This one is, uh, I th- we're getting more and more complicated, more and more sophisticated as we're going down the list, I think. So the next one is a little bit more sophisticated than vertical. Uh, in certain ways, and it's uh, demographic specialization. And this is, you you can kind of define this as like factors that would show up about somebody on a census, or, you know, it's like gender, age, zip code. Uh, It's facts about them, things that are sort of indisputable facts about uh, a group of people that for whatever reason, you've decided that you would like to serve these people in some way. The problem with the demographic specialization in a lot of cases is that the sort of coarse, big picture, what's the blunt? It's like a blunt instrument. There's these big facts, like just because somebody is a 32-year-old soccer mom doesn't necessarily mean anything, you know? So it's like, you're sort of like trying to correlate a an accident of of geography and biology and birth date to uh, some sort of thing you can solve for them. And it's a very, it's very, usually it's a kind of a blunt instrument in terms of marketing, but there are really cool exceptions to it. And if you are in one of those exceptions, in my opinion, uh, it's actually pretty easy because it's really easy for, for people to recommend you to other people because these characteristics are so obvious that they immediately have Rolodex moments about people who would be in your target market. Yeah. As I'm hearing you say that, I feel like it has to be 
really well targeted or you run the risk of not being taken seriously. Like some of the, I'm just thinking about some of the investment companies that talk about, here's our investing for women. And <laughs> right, that's a good, that's a I good find that so offensive. So like, annoying. What? Right. But on, <laughs> right. on the other hand, what if you are a chiropractor who wants to help pregnant women in late, like, what is it called? Like third trimester with back pain when they can't take medicine, they have really bad back pain and you want to specialize on that. That's not condescending. Yeah. No, not that, at all. No, like it's obviously for women, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and you can say to people in your marketing or and whether your marketing is on your website or word of mouth or email list or social media campaigns, do you know anybody who's in their third trimester right now who's having back pain? And people are going to say no, or they're going to say, as a matter of fact, I do. Why? Well, because I they I know they can't take medication. If they're having back pain, I can offer them some relief. And here's what they would need to do. Like so that is a that's one of those things where a demographic specialization is perfect. Oh, I want to just jump on that though, because the example you gave is very local. Like come to my office and I'll fix you. But what I love about that is that's got the ability to that person could become an authority on back pain in the last trimester. Of pregnancy, so it's got it's got both pieces. It has that local calling card, and it has the ability to be national or global, also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm working with someone right now who's who's got a sort. Let's call it developing a sort of thought leadership position, and and perhaps a consulting or info product business to spin out of that. That's specifically for parents in Silicon Valley who have teens and preteens mostly preteens. So like kids in, in middle school and early high school. And, and the, the message that she has for them is specifically for that situation. And it's not, it's not abstracted to like, Oh, people like that would probably buy a Mercedes. So let's advertise our Mercedes to people in that demographic. To me, that's the, that's the clumsy way to handle demographic specialization. But if you have a message for parents who have 12 year olds that are addicted to their smartphone, now all of a sudden my student here is like, got a really interesting suite of solutions for that or things to think about. It's like, oh, okay. So that, that's an example of a, what I would call an appropriate demographic specialization, I suppose. Yeah, I'm thinking of another one. Uh, I don't know why I'm in the financial advisor space today, but somebody who specialized in gay couples with children. A lot of gay couples have to go through different kinds of surrogate relationships. They have a lot of financial issues around that. And it's made a very good specialization doing that. Yeah, I know a photographer that shoots exclusively same-sex weddings and has a bang in business from yeah. it. Just, yeah. yeah. And, there, and there are differences. There's like different... You can't do the normal, normal, I shouldn't have said that. Uh-oh. Um, expected. <laughs> expected. It, it's Thank not you. like the expected path. And and if you haven't done it before, you right. don't know what what those those obstacles might be. So don't you want someone to guide you through that? I mean, those mm-hmm. make sense to me. Yep. Yeah, I tell a story about uh, the DJ at a uh, family member's same-sex wedding where you know, he accidentally introduced Mr. And Mrs. You know, it's like, everyone was like, oops. Oops. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Not good. Right. So uh, demographic specialization, if you're using it appropriately is really powerful because the characteristics of a demographic uh, sort of definition or profile are super obvious to anybody who knows people who are that, whatever, exhibit those. uh, They're just facts and they're easy to spot. And the pregnant example, like everybody knows who they're friends with that's pregnant. Like mm-hmm. it's one of those things you just You don't know. hide that generally. No, no, generally not. Not in the last trimester for sure. <laughs> yeah, good luck. So I think that's, is there anything else on demographic? I'm just thinking about it a little bit more. I mean, I think sometimes with demographics, people, consultants in particular, don't necessarily specialize demographically, but it turns out that their client base veers in a particular direction, right? So maybe it's it's it can become mostly men or mostly women, not intentionally. It's that's sort of what's happened. And then sometimes people will sit back and say, so should I make this conscious decision to have a, a specific demographic niche and how would I deal with this? So I, I think this is the one that can creep up on you sometimes. Yep. And I think there's 
Hmm, I don't know about this. So I'm not sure where this fits. It's almost, I, I feel like we might be blurring into psychographic, which is the next one. But I know a couple of people who specialize in doing whatever they do, you know, it's sort of a generalist web developer or web designer, but they, they specialize on women-owned businesses. And yeah, the financial advisors do that too, you know, women business owners. And, and they might slice and dice, you know, the business a little further, but then that, to me, that's not demographic anymore. Right. So if, to me, it almost starts to feel psychographic at a point. But anyway, it's certainly something you can do to differentiate yourself. The reason I brought it up was because it's a question of like, is it, is this, is it sort of retroactive lagging in indicator that like, huh, apparently I appeal to mostly men or mostly women or mostly people in their fifties or mostly people in their twenties, you might start to recognize it. And then the question is like, well, do I want to call that out? And, and instead of it being a lagging indicator, have it be like a disqualification sort of thing or like a marketing thing up front. Yeah, because I, I mean, a lot of times you would market to different audiences differently. I mean, if I were marketing to 20 somethings, I'd market differently than to 50 somethings. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people I've worked with have noticed a lot of times, but definitely not always, there will be a correlation between their current level of business success and their age. Not always, definitely not but often. So enough for it to be meaningful. So, you know, if I get, if I get a lead for say like my most expensive offerings, private coaching, if I get a lead for that and the person is 20, I'm like, I, I don't know if this is going to be the right fit. I'll, I'll keep an open mind and I'll have a conversation with them. Cause it could be that they're, and I've had talked to a few, not a lot, but a few who have just hit a home run with like a WordPress theme or something like that. And they're just like riding a rocket and they're smart enough to know that it's going to crash at some point and they want to take advantage of it while they've got money. And how do I build a business around this and that sort of thing? So uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's interesting. But to your point, I don't know a lot of people who have, have appropriately and effectively used demographic. Not tons. Yeah, it's, I've, I've seen it more in the last three to five years with women specializing in working with other women. You know, I see that a lot. I'm thinking about, I was looking for a web design firm for a client and I found one and I just love their work. It was beautiful and it was, it, it operated well. I mean, it was just beautiful on all levels. And then I, I started reading their stuff and they said, what well, we specialize in working with something like creative, female creative makers. And my client was none of those things. <laughs> I mean, he was creative, but not as, a, as an occupation. And so I just for the heck of it, I reached out to them and they turned me down. And so, yeah, so I, I do see more of that. It can be really powerful if it's done well. The key is you just don't want to tick off the very group you're trying to attract. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, your example at the beginning was great. Uh, okay, so that brings us to number five, and this is uh, called psychographic specialization. I love this one. I do too, and it, I think it's broadly misunderstood or it seems confusing. It's a weird word. It's It's got psycho in it. It doesn't <laughs> sound good. Um, and it's a little bit, if you look it up, I think the definitions are a little bit easy. They feel a lot, a lot of them feel hand-waving. It's not clear. So the way that I describe it is... It's a group of people who believe the same way. They they believe the same thing. You'll get a lot of stuff about if you look up definitions about how they behave and what their behaviors are, and that's how you can tell what their beliefs are. And it's like, look, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But but it's conf it can, that is confusing for people who are sort of new to this. But the example I usually use is people who are environmentally conscious. You can't tell. You can't probably can't tell by looking at someone whether or not they're environmentally conscious. Or if they are, uh, whatever, conservative, uh, left-wing, right-wing, uh, if they believe that there is global warming or there isn't global warming or that we live on a flat earth. Like, these are things that you typically can't just look at someone and be like, oh, well, there's a flat earther, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right? It's it's not obvious, uh, usually. It's not, like, it's not like roughly how old they are. Like, you can look at someone and think roughly how old they are, but you can't mm -hmm. tell, like, what they're psychographic makeup is yeah, necessarily what they unless, believe you yeah. can't tell you might think you can but you can't tell right 
I mean, barring a, a bumper sticker on their chest, it's unlikely that you'll be able to just... Or a political statement on their hat or their t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. This is the one that a lot of people who are I work with who are struggling to pick something. This is actually the one they gravitate to, but it's it's not as easy as... It, it's sort of aspirational, I guess. It's like for them where they're like, oh, I really want to help people who want to promote clean energy or renewable energy, or I want to work with green businesses, which is a lot of people. That's another thing that is confusing. People think of like green businesses as a vertical, but it's not there. There's all sorts of different, you know, you could have a green laundromat or a green car manufacturing plant or a green office building or co-working space. So what you're really saying is you want to, you want to, um, help people who have this worldview or are on this mission or have this belief. And it's cool because one of the cool things about it is that almost certainly you're picking something that a group that you're in. So when someone is wants to specialize with, you know, green businesses, they probably are adhere to the same ideology as the client. So right away, you're in the same tribe, even though you might be a web developer or a photographer or a financial advisor, and the people you're going to work with are running co-working spaces or, you know, startups in Silicon Valley, or they have a very different, they're very different demographically, they're very different vertically, but you believe the same things. And the cool thing about this, or the sort of marketing advantage is that you're in the tribe, you don't. You know their language already. You know where they hang out. You know where they're talking about things. You know what conferences and events they go to. You know where they shop. You know what they read. So it's relatively straightforward to get in front of them, get on their radar. And since you understand them, there's a high likelihood that you can uh, find out or you're already aware of a way to take your broad skill set and help them with something, even if that something isn't promoting the mission. So in other words, you could say, uh, I, I just want to work with green businesses. All right. So you, you, you can find them. It'd be very easy with a, you know, a little Google foo to find green businesses, people that have won awards or people that are promoting on their websites and say, Oh, uh, this green business needs a new website or this green business is looking to hire a DevOps person or this green business is projecting some signal that indicates to me that they are in need of my assistance. So even though you're not communicating with, you know, and they can reach out to them and set up a phone call to maybe do one of those things, even though you're not talking about them getting greener, so to speak, it's not like you're making them greener. Maybe you are, but it doesn't have to be that you're making them greener than they were. You could just help them with stuff and they're going to want to work with you because people who are kind of in the same mission are happy to support each other in their respective businesses. So get between you and some random web developer, some random DevOps person, they're probably going to pick you even if you're more expensive because they believe in you and you believe in them and they're going to want to, you're going to want to support each other. Yes. So <laughs> the downside <laughs> of this uh, I tend to get from, from people is that a lot of times they find themselves when, when they go down this path, the word nonprofit always comes up. They're like, well, I'd love, you know, I want to work with, um, nonprofits that are helping homeless people or the opiate epidemic or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, you know, this mission, all good stuff, but they can't afford me. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's two things I want to say about that. One is, yeah, they can, you know, if they have a building, they can probably afford you. Um, or not all of them, but certainly some of them. Uh, there's a website called GuideStar. I think it's I think it's .com. It might be .org, but it's GuideStar. You can search for you know nonprofit GuideStar, and it has a list of the annual donations or the operating budgets of like all the registered nonprofits in the United States. And they're make they're make I almost said making. It's not that they're making billions, but they have billions to play with. And yes, maybe your local nonprofit animal shelter can't afford, you know, for you to build a website for them from scratch, but certainly PETA can, or some, you know, the ASPCA can. So give yourself a little latitude there to, you know, people who really want to help animals or nonprofits that are dedicated to helping animals. And that's your thing. And that's their thing. And you guys can bond on that, but they're not broke. They're not, they're not necessarily broke. I'll qualify it a little. They're not necessarily broke. So you can help them. You, they probably can't afford you. Also, 
you can be really general. You don't have to specialize in your skills if you're going to be really specialized in your target market. So you can broadly apply your skills to this area. And maybe for the local animal shelter, you know, you're a web developer or a web designer and the local animal shelters can't afford to have you do or you can't afford to build you know, a nice premium website for the local animal shelter, but maybe the ones that have WordPress, you can make a little open source plugin and they can just buy that for 30 bucks or something. And you can sell that. You can use that as sort of a, not a loss leader because you'd still be making money, but you could use that as an entry point into uh, almost like content marketing where you make this free or very inexpensive plugin for kind of the, the most financially challenged like the bottom of the pile, you know, the bottom of the pyramid is what I'm picturing. And you serve them with something that just doesn't cost you much. And therefore it's profitable to them because they only pay 30 bucks or it's free. And uh, you're not losing any money. Like once you make it once, you're going to continue to sell or continue to promote your business. And then as those people connect with other people who also want to help animals, they're going to mention your name. Oh, you know, the guy that developed our WordPress plugin is, you know, he does custom work too. That's where I was thinking about this as you were talking. It's you can also, it, it doesn't have to be the focus of everything that you do. I, I have a thing on my site where I talk about my rescue dog and I've actually gotten at least one client that I know of from doing that. I mean, it's not why I did it, but I do love working with pet lovers. Um, I work with people who don't have any animals. It's not like I don't like them or I don't want to help them, but people who love animals and I have a natural affinity. So yeah, so there's ways you can build that in without having to make a full market out of it too. You have to just decide where your market is going to be. And by market, I mean the people you're going to sell to. Yeah. How you're yeah. going to make your money. Uh, one of the tricky parts about psychographic is, like I said, you can't necessarily tell by looking at someone if they fall into your ideal client psychographic. Uh, but what you can do, and this is a little bit uh, tricky, let's say it's a little slippery, but it does, it, it can work, where you you find a high correlation between someone who believes this or believes the way that you do or the in the way of the people you want to support, and you find a visible characteristic, almost like a demographic aspect to them that is highly correlated with someone who believes this. So like it might be something like environmentally conscious people. Maybe you want to work with environmentally conscious people and you say, uh, tell your friends and family, you say, hey, do you know anybody that drives a Prius? Prius is yeah. where I was going, yeah. Right. <laughs> or, or if you want a more uh, a, a more well-heeled clientele, a Tesla. <laughs> no, that's actually... <laughs> That's actually different. I don't think Teslas are bought by people who are strictly environmentally conscious. I'll bet you it correlates less so. Yeah, but it's finding that link. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think the other thing that I like about psychographics, it, and this doesn't make it easier to find your audience, but it does make it easier to niche down into what you're really good at, is this is where you can start thinking about the attributes of your ideal client, like people who... Like in my case, I work really well with people who are curious, who keep wanting to learn. Does that mean that they read, I don't know, Christian Science Monitor? Probably not. You, you look for those things and it's, you know, people on a mission or again, in my case, it's people who believe they're special, right? I don't want to work with somebody who like can't see ultimately how good they really are. They have to be able to be coachable. On, on that, it, just as an example. So there are things like that that you each have that are unique to you in terms of how you do your magic, how you make the transformation in your clients and buyers. And so when you can match that up with some kind of a psychographic, boom, it's, yeah. it, it, it's like magic. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, like when I feel like when psychographic specialization is working for someone, they're in heaven. Yes. It's like, it's the best because you're yeah. just, wor you're working with people who you're always on the same page with. It's, it's really, really a good fit. It's really it's, nice. It's, it's kind of like, if you think about, you know, having matching values and then having resonance. And I always think of resonance as more of a person to person kind of a thing. And you know, when you feel it, when you read somebody's website and you go, oh, okay. <laughs> and then you read somebody else's and you go, oh, I had a call like this uh, a week or so ago from someone and it was like, I wanted to go have dinner with her. 
I thought she would be so much fun. And, and I would just like wish she lived down the street so we could do that. But yeah, there's, there's that resonance that I think is important. Yes. Great example. Yeah. So that, so it's, so like I said, to sort of, sort of wrap up, I think as we move through the list one through five, there's a, there's a pretty, I think it's pretty clear that the beginning it's, you're thinking way more about yourself. And then as you get to the end, you're thinking more about the other person. And in fact, you're thinking so much about the other person that you're thinking about what they're thinking, not even who they are, or what they are, or, you yes. know, yes. So you're inside gets, their heads. Yeah, you're inside their heads. Like you're gone, you've gone from inside your head at the very beginning, you want to be a node specialist, to the other side where the the far other end where you're like, I want to help people who care about animals. And it's like the complete opposite brain that, you, that you're yeah. in. Instead of being in your own head, you're in their head. Yeah. So, you know, it's a pretty big mind shift. You need to be an empathetic person. You need to be a little bit clever with how you uh, find them, how you get on their radar. And, you know, it's it's uh, perhaps a little bit more advanced as you go down that path. But I think having these categories, I hope, will help the listener to kind of say, take stock of where they are right now. Like, where are you on this scale? Or It's not exactly a scale, but it's kind of like one where you could say, oh, where am I on this? Like, how specialized am I now? Am I just pure horizontal? Am I not even horizontal? I'm a generalist for everyone. Uh, you, then you're not even on the scale. But if you're, if you're, if you're totally off the scale, if you're somewhere on it, you can sort of look at this, look at, take stock of your reality, you know, your business, your past clients, the people you want to work with, or you aspire to work with and be like, all right, which, which one of these is probably the best fit for me right now? You know, which one might be aspirational and something I want to build toward in the next, you know, three to five years or something. Well, and know that you don't have to go through every every one of these. Definitely, yes. You definitely. could start at horizontal and go right to psychographic. Agreed. It, so it's it's what works for you and the business that you're carving out for yourself. Yeah, that's why it's not a scale because you could just jump around. Yeah, yeah, which is mm-hmm. kind of cool when you think about it. Yeah. So hopefully this is like a good mental framework for you to you know the dear listener to uh, think of specialization in a way and just believe us when we say that when you nail this, it's like magic. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you go from getting one lead uh, every six months to getting like too many leads for you to handle because the word Wouldn't of mouth starts to spread. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah. You could be choosy and pick the ones that you're really going to hit home runs for instead of ones where you're not really a great fit, but hey, I got to pay the rent. Well, and the other side of that is is that when you're at the far end of this, you've got a lot more confidence typically than when you're going in at the at the beginning with a horizontal specialization. You really start to own your value to this audience, and it changes how you think about it. It changes how you have those prospective client conversations. It changes how you put out your content. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it changes everything for the better. Yeah. Yeah. For the good. <laughs> Love it. All right, cool. So we'll stop beating the dead horse. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.